So fintech is uh, an interesting space. Uh, when I uh, started Yodli back in 99, I don't think there was such a thing as fintech. In fact, if anything, fintech was something people ran away from because people did not like uh, dealing with what is a very onerous infrastructure around regulations and security and a bunch of other stuff in those in those areas. So it was very hard uh, to actually find investors that would invest, that would be ready to invest in in the financial services sector. I think we've come a long way since then. I think the first generation of companies was really more in kind of what I think of as creating the platform, so the plumbing of uh, enabling a bunch of uh, newer innovation. I think today there is a lot of uh, basic services in uh, financial services that I think are now starting to become easier to use. I think Yogli created uh, access to data, uh, Stripe created access to payments. So there's a variety of different services that all existed in the past, but were very, very clunky and hard to use. But I think uh, the, the first generation of companies effectively ended up creating an access layer, if you may, to the, to the, the um, building blocks of financial services companies. Hey guys, before we get started, I want to tell you about today's show sponsor, Carta. Carta simplifies how startups manage equity, track cap tables, and get valuations. Go to carta.com slash syndicate to get 10% off and learn more about how they can help you with managing your complicated cap table and keeping investors happy. Welcome to The Syndicate, the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years, it takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real, true wealth. To find out more about us, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show. Hey guys, welcome to The Syndicate, the show where we get the investors focused on really disrupting the future. Today we've got somebody, awesome name, awesome track record, awesome thesis. We've got Schwark, Sat- I'm going to butcher this anyways, Satyavula on the program. He, he helped me before the program and it doesn't matter. When, when your name is Matt Ward and you just have that typical white guy name, you really try to do well with the names, but I, I just can't, I, I just messed it up totally, Schwark. So thanks for coming today to The Syndicate. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So Trinity Ventures, you guys have, and your partners have a, a really solid track record. I think Starbucks, New Relic, Care.com, Loop, Branch. How did you get into venture and then what's the story of the firm? So the firm itself is uh, over 30 years old. So we're one of the old guard venture firms. Been around forever, as you mentioned. I think one of the first investments we made was actually uh, first check into Starbucks when they had one store up in Seattle. First check uh, into Starbucks. Are you serious? Yeah. So that's a, a very interesting investment that kind of panned out very well for us. But these days, of course, we do uh, primarily tech investing. We're uh, uh, primarily focused on mostly software investing. And uh, we have a uh, $400 million fund primarily for, focused on Series A's and Series B's. We have uh, five investing partners, each focused on a variety of different areas. And uh, my areas of focus are primarily fintech. Uh, I also spent some time in security and uh, enterprise AI. Yeah, those three really tie together. I know your background is fintech. How did you how'd you get lured into venture? That's an interesting story. I uh, actually never really had plans to go into venture, but uh, one of my partners, Ajit Chopra, who was here at Trinity, was the one that was responsible for kind of luring me into venture. I've had a, a long uh, relationship with Trinity, however. I actually was a Trinity portfolio CEO before I came here. Uh, my second company, uh, uh, Trinity, actually led the Series B on. And uh, I also spent some time as an outside board member at uh, a bunch of other 
companies that were in the training portfolio as well. So I've gotten to know a lot of the team pretty well before I actually ever came here. Which side of the table are you more comfortable on? I think now I could say I'm probably comfortable on both sides of the table. I uh, It took a while. I spent probably 20 years on the entrepreneur side of the table. And uh, now I've spent uh, two and a half on this side of the table. So this is probably the much newer side of the table for me. But uh after two and a half years, I have to say, I probably feel just as comfortable now on the side of the table. So fintech, what were you guys doing in the old companies and where do you see the industry headed now? So fintech is uh, an interesting space. Uh, when I uh, started Yodli back in 99, I don't think there was such a thing as fintech. In fact, if anything, fintech was something people ran away from because people did not like uh, dealing with what is a very onerous infrastructure around regulations and security and a bunch of other stuff in those in those areas. So it was very hard uh, to actually find investors that would invest, who would be ready to invest in in the financial services sector. I think we've come a long way since then. I think the first generation of companies was really more in kind of what I think of as creating the platforms or the plumbing of uh, enabling a bunch of uh, newer innovation. I think today there is a lot of uh, basic services in uh, financial services that I think are now starting to become easier to use. I think Yogi created uh, access to data, uh, Stripe created access to payments. So there's a variety of different services that all existed in the past, but were very, very clunky and hard to use. But I think uh, the, the first generation of companies effectively ended up creating an access layer, if you may, to the, to the, the um, building blocks of financial services. Going forward, I think there's a couple of areas where I think there are still more building blocks to be built. Uh, banking is one that I think uh, is, still does, is still very hard to access and hard to use. But once all these building blocks are in place, I can see the next 10 to 20 years basically being the building of all the different kinds of services that actually use all these services to create compelling value props for consumers, businesses, what have you. I think that is the next set of um, um, generation, if you may, of companies. And there's also a second bucket, I think, which is what I'll think, what I'll call the modernization of financial, the traditional financial services in itself. Uh, traditional financial services has been around for hundreds of years and actually has invested in technology almost every decade to try and keep up with the evolution of what's actually ended up happening uh, from telephony in the very beginning to the internet to you know mobile and so on and so forth. And um, But the back offices of financial services have largely been protected, if you may, from a lot of the innovation or in fact, you know, it's very expensive to change those layers. So they've kind of remained untouched in a lot of ways. But the demands of the new economy and the, the real time everything world, I think is going to require the re-engineering of what I think of as the, the, the underbelly of financial services and lots of opportunities that I think uh, exist there as well. What's that mean in layman's terms? Does that mean killing hedge funds and going to index investing just on a consumer basis? No, I think uh, that could be one of the kinds of apps that could be built. And I know that, you know, folks like Wealthfront and others are trying to do stuff like that. This is really more about trying to see like when you actually do make an investment, how does that actually get uh, transacted? How does that clear? Like, where does that actually go? What is actually happening in the back offices that actually make sure that when you buy stock, it actually ends up in your account? And that is still happening, you know, in a very, there's lots of manual steps and a lot of infrastructure in the pack that is still uh, happening very slowly. So I think the capital markets infrastructure in terms of how stock moves from one place to the other, how money moves from one place to the other, not how you send money to your friend, but really how 
bank A sends money to bank B and also how bank A and B kind of make sure the stock gets from bank A to bank B. Yeah, are all things that are, you know, right for modernization. So over the next 10, 20 years, if you had to choose B2B fintech or B2C fintech, you could only pick one, which would you pick? I would pick B2B fintech. And the reason, uh, assuming we're talking about the US, if we're talking outside the US, I'd pick, I'd pick B2C fintech. And the reason for that dichotomy is I think in the US, uh, I believe access to the consumer in the financial services world is somewhat uh, um, almost uh, monopolistically protected by the government to keep the incumbents uh, in their place. So there's a lot of regulations that effectively favor the uh, the incumbents and make it very hard for a new entrant to get into the into the space. And those are there are a lot of good reasons for uh, wanting to have an infrastructure like that, safety and soundness, to make sure that you know we don't have an other big uh, calamity because of uh, uh, rapid innovation and consumers are actually losing all their savings and so on and so forth. So there's some good safety and soundness reasons to have that kind of infrastructure, but it also has a side effect, has a uh, an impact that the incumbents tend to be uh, somewhat um, inherently advantaged in order to access consumers in the U.S. In, uh, in other geographies, Europe and Latin America, for example, uh, that is less the case. Uh, it is still somewhat the case in that they are still advantaged managed, but it's almost, it's not as much of a uh, almost insurmountable moat as it is in the US. Um, so you can, in fact, get in there and you can, in fact, become a regulated entity that can, in fact, access consumers. So from for that reason, I do believe that it's a little bit harder in the US to go direct to consumer, build a lasting um, business. Is that because there's more corruption in the, in the US when it comes to finance? There's just more money in politics from the finance guys? I don't think it's, le- I don't think it has anything to do with that. I think it's a lot more to do with how regulators in the US uh, worry about protecting the consumer. So there is a there is a, uh, a higher level of responsibility they see for themselves in making sure that they're protecting the consumer. And so that means that they actually have regulations that basically are building very, very high walls in order to get in the walled garden. And uh, once you're in the walled garden, however, you know, you are actually part of a very august club, if you may, that actually lets you build very interesting businesses. Yeah, then you keep what you kill. How do you think about the tech giants entering fintech? They all seem to be Nap, nipping at the bud, so to speak. The, the the tech giants are probably the ones that are the best equipped uh, to potentially try and uh, fight this fight because they will ultimately be recognized as uh, potentially people that can, in fact, safely serve the consumer uh, much more so than a, a newer fintech. And so a regulator is more likely to look upon them more fairly. Um, that said, getting into financial services is a heavy lift. Uh, in that there's a significant amount of compliance and, and a lot of different things around, you know, uh, the re- the regulatory compliance stuff that requires you to almost slow down the entire business in order to make sure you're in the comp- you're doing all of your compliance correctly. And for most big tech giants, that might actually end up dragging the the core of their businesses down in terms of you know slowing down the rate of innovation and slowing down the rate at which they can impact stuff. So I would think that while they are very interested in getting into it, and they probably will get into it in at least small pieces, I do think it's probably more likely to be more measured and probably a lot more partnerships and maybe joint ventures rather than a whole hog uh, disruption, if you may. Or spinoffs, Amazon banking, yeah. Facebook banking, yeah. etc. Yeah. Interesting. So 
to to transition a little bit, you're basically kind of dealing with the three the three big pillars of the economy, at least where it's headed: AI, fintech, and and cyber. Which of those three are you most excited about over the next ten and twenty years in terms of as, as an investor? I think as an investor, uh, we clearly will have a substantial amount of the economy that will evolve because of uh, what I'll call. AI and machine learning kind of being an ingredient of a lot of different things. So I actually don't think of things like AI as almost being an individual or a separate kind of investment opportunity on its own. Uh, Though there's going to be some opportunities that are what I'll call AI infrastructure that I think could be interesting. My interest is primarily more of the applied AI, if you may, or the applications of where we can leverage machine learning to change how people do business every day. And those kinds of things, I think, are effectively going to impact all kinds of aspects of, of life and therefore create a lot of uh, investment opportunities there from. Uh, so I'm looking clearly at a lot of stuff within fintech that actually leverages machine learning to kind of change a lot of different things. Uh, for example, I have a company that basically is doing that in uh, pre-tax automation, uh, automating how we use uh, the tax benefits that the IRS gives us, uh, leveraging machine learning. There's lots of different kinds of things that can actually happen in, in those kinds of areas. But I'm also interested in how uh, AI can actually change how corporations change how they do business, uh, primarily around the internal uh, operations of most corporations, you know, boring things like HR and financials and so on and so forth. There are relatively complex infrastructures, uh, relatively people-heavy infrastructures, and uh, a lot of those things can be revolutionized using AI. So I think those are all interesting opportunities that I, I'm quite interested in. Uh, security is something that um, is, is something I've had to deal with all my life, uh, having spent time in fintech. Uh, it's a very, very key aspect of what you need to be on top of if you actually want to do anything in financial services. And so from that very, very close perspective of observing what I've had to do, I realized that I kind of have to keep investing in that space as an operator in financial services almost every year because the threats keep changing. Uh, the entire landscape keeps changing. The technologies change and therefore the threat factors change again. And so there's almost no end to my investments as an operator into into my security infrastructure. And that's what makes this security, I think, as a, is an evergreen area. I don't think security will ever really go out of fashion simply because it is such a constantly moving target that there will always be opportunities to build new security companies that actually will enable the protection against all those new generation of threats. So I don't think there's ever going to be one security brand that will last forever. There'll always be an evolution, therefore a significant number of opportunities. So fintech, I think, is a lot of innovation that is going to be transformational uh, over the next maybe 15 years or so, 20 years possibly. And in that time frame, I would say that you know a substantial amount of the fintech innovation will be you know uh, delivered. So uh, I don't know if there's a whole lot more, but things like security will be around for the next hundred years. And uh, AI is another area that I think for probably the next 10-15 years has a substantial amount of impact on how things get uh, changed and revolutionized. Well, in a lot of ways, cyber security is a bit analogous or at least a metaphor to insurance. It's something that everyone has to have. Everyone hates. It's kind of a net negative. But if something bad does happen, then you're glad that you had uh, the investment, so to speak, in place. It, it always grows larger because the threats always grow bigger as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I think insurance is a good analogy. 
it's 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 almost a one one step even more interesting or better than insurance in a way that insurance is something that we all almost choose to have and make sure that we uh, try and keep in in place security at this point has become a table stakes like you cannot not have security so if you don't as a consumer actually have security uh, someone's actually putting that security in place uh, for you either someone's supposed someone's supposed to be it's more like it <laughs> that's that's very true so your service providers your isps your your employer uh, whoever's providing you your it infrastructure that could be like you know the Googles and the Apples of the world, someone is investing in the security layers, and in most cases, multiple of those layers are all investing in security in order to kind of keep us safe. So, so even as a consumer, if you never went out and bought an antivirus software, you are definitely being paid for at some level or some layer to the security industry to kind of keep your system secure. I wanted to take a quick time out to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Carta. As a founder, investor, or startup employee, you know that most of the wealth in the tech industry, it comes from equity. It's not from salary. But how you manage equity, how we manage equity, it's broken. It can be complicated to figure out who owns how much of a startup and to share that important information and documents between companies and VCs. And for VCs to see how investments are performing real time, that's incredibly important for raising your next fund. Many investors and companies still use spreadsheets, paper certificates, and slow-moving service providers to keep that kind of information on hand and to share with prospective investors. These tools and services that are used to manage equity, they're dated, they're slow, and it's funny given that VCs and CEOs are the ones creating the future. Picarda fixes the cap table equity management problem. They offer cap table management, valuations, full-service fund administration, all in one platform. More than 600,000 employee shareholders from companies and VCs at firms like Slack, Coinbase, Flexport, August Capital, Founders Fund, all these guys and more, they use Carta to manage hundreds of billions of dollars in equity. To simplify how you manage equity, use Carta. Get 10% off today at carta.com syndicate. It'll help you with simplifying the cap table, which will make it easier for you to raise money as a startup and easier for investors to get on board. Carta.com syndicate. What's it going to take to get government and companies to take this seriously? I mean, we have the Equifax hack, the Target hack. Somebody just gave up 300 million or something user accounts. It's, it's absurd. Europe seems to kind of get it, but go a little too they're well-intentioned, but occasionally problematic in their approach. The US just doesn't seem to care. What's it going to take? Well, I think if you look at what Europe did, and if you look at what uh, things like GDPR have done, have basically made the consequences matter. What I mean by that is, you know, there always was privacy law. There's always things that actually made things better to make sure that you're protecting your data, et cetera, et cetera. But what the GDPR thing did was actually created a solution that went all the way into uh, impacting the top line of companies in that depending on how big your top line was, your penalty kind of matched in scale to that top line. So we're talking about the consequences of something not being protected was massive. You could no longer think of it as say, hey, you know, if I have a problem, I'll pay a fine. I know I'll pay a fine but I can afford the fine. It's not a problem. So if it's going to be a, a, a significant chunk of your 
top line revenues, now you're starting to go pay attention. And so I think that's really what changed with uh, things like GDPR to kind of get people to pay a lot better attention. You could go down that path in the US as well. But I think if you look at things around security uh, as opposed to privacy, I do think that the, 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 the bar is substantially higher in that it is a very, very, very challenging task to actually truly protect this information um, because there is a constantly changing technology layer, a constantly changing um, 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 set of uh, bad actors, if you may, that makes this really, really, really hard to protect. So when you think about something like that, not being protected. It's not because these companies are not really trying hard enough, though some of them might could say could do a better job of protecting this information than others. But ultimately, we actually need to have an infrastructure that is a little bit more resilient to some of these attacks rather than trying to prevent some of these attacks. So what I mean by that is we need to come up with smart you know, data systems that effectively are can survive the breach of this information such that, you know, for example, today, if you lose your social security number, you pretty much could lose your entire life because that, for, for example, is almost an unauthenticated mechanism to give access to a variety of different things uh, that belong to you. So, but that is fundamentally part of how we've architected our information, if you may, in the world. And so I do believe that some of this does need to evolve such that that is not the case. And uh, I think uh, different parts of the world have done it differently. And some have gone the biometric route, which has its own issues. And you know, but but fundamentally, I do think that in the U.S., if you think about consumer data protection, which I think is where you were going, I do think part of it will have to come from the consequences that are significant for corporations, so that it's actually worth making the investments to truly protect it to the best of their ability. But at the end of the day, there will still be breaches, and we do need a, a better information architecture that can be more resilient to these breaches. Is it fair to say we don't expect Google to send their engineers to battle if the U.S. has to go to war? Maybe this should be a this should be a countrywide cyber defense type initiative? Is that something that could be more readily implemented? Or for instance, an EU or a NATO that was purely anti-cyber warfare and then open sourcing code for companies? To be honest, a lot of that stuff is really already happening. So there is, in fact, a cyber defense command. There is people that are actually trying to do all the offense and defense for these things. But the attack surface is massive. They're talking about, you know, multiple corporations and the internet itself is not a walled garden. There are multiple. It's a big network with a big mesh with multiple endpoints in the entire system. So I do think ultimately having, you know, the kind of thing that we do for physical security, right, where we, the United States is a, a, a landmass with, you know, water on most sides. I do think protecting that kind of an asset where there's a very clear physical border is a very different kind of um, challenge than doing it for something that's effectively open and porous and heavily networked with all different parts of the world. So I do think that that model doesn't translate as as simply and as clearly. So the protection infrastructure does need to be more distributed. But I think ultimately, this is not about people having to come up with new kinds of things that haven't been invented yet. This is about actually having a, a certain level of education on how think about security, you know, creating defense and layers, figuring out how you actually test your defenses on a regular basis, uh, training your individuals, people. Uh, social engineering still happens to be the easiest way to get into most of these systems. Uh, it's not actually trying to, you know, brute force a password, for example. Uh, those kinds of things haven't have stopped working for a long time. So I do think 
think that there is a lot of different things that can be done. And that a lot of this has to do with driving awareness across a, a large population that suddenly in the late 90s came online without actually really understanding what being online actually meant in terms of risk uh, on the cyber side. But let's be honest, we also can't idiot proof everything because we're dealing with a lot of people that have no idea what's actually happening. It's, uh, I mean, people post information they should never post on Facebook. Let's let's be honest here. We need uh, we need something that can be simple as well. That's right. I think I think ultimately it's very going to be very hard to prevent people from posting information. That's something that people will end up doing. The question is, how can we be a little bit more resilient to that thing? So meaning that uh, the way we authenticate consumers for actions is still quite arcane, right? So we still kind of effectively, in most cases, just ask you for your social security number and some questions about you know who you are and so on and so forth. In most cases, uh, a hacker uh, googling me can answer those questions better than I. Can. Because I don't remember where I was living in 1998, but uh, you know, but I'm sure Google can tell you. And so I do think that that's the kind of uh, infrastructure that needs re-architecture in order to kind of protect us better. What do you think about blockchain? Hype or promise? Both. Uh, in that there is a substantial amount of hype. It reminds me a lot of uh, what happened in the bubble of the late 90s with the internet. Back then, which is when I started my first company, there was a tremendous amount of hype, and everybody was putting .com in their name to kind of uh, get a huge stock boost. Today, you put blockchain in your name and get a huge stock boost. So it's the same kind of uh, kind of uh, hype cycle that we're going through uh, that we did back in the 90s. But I think what's interesting is that hype cycle of the late 90s gave us what we think of as our the way we live today. So you know, access, connections, everything being online, not ever having to go to the bank anymore. Uh, all of these things were products, buying stuff on Amazon, all of this are products of that hype cycle. And if that hype cycle didn't happen, uh, internet adoption wouldn't be as vast and massive on consumers as it has been. And uh, I think on the blockchain side, it's very similar. The hype cycle that we're going through right now is almost a necessary step in order to kind of build awareness of what this what this actually makes possible. In this case, I think the impacts are substantially more interesting on the business side or what corporations can do with when they leverage stuff like the blockchain than actually on the consumer side. So I actually think that there's a substantial amount of business processes that can truly be revolutionized and uh, and different industries that can maybe even be disrupted by the use of blockchain-related infrastructure. And uh, none of them would ever be interested or be willing to look at something based on the blockchain if it weren't for this hype cycle. So I think it has a lot of promise. And to deliver the promise, we had to go through a hype cycle. Would you invest in a blockchain company today? And if so, what would you be looking for? So I have invested in blockchain companies. And uh, the way I kind of look at companies, just given what I just said, is what is going to last past this hype cycle. So I'm less interested in all of the hype, hypey stuff that's happening right now. I'm not as as uh, uh, bullish on a lot of the cryptocurrencies that are out there and so on and so forth. But however, I have invested in a, a company that's trying to move all of the tickets onto the blockchain. So these are like event tickets and stuff like that, which are effectively digitally, digitally native. So you, these tickets can be issued 
in the digital world, they can live in the digital world. And what's interesting about tickets is there's this great secondary market. There's a lot of trading happening. So those are actually perfect kinds of assets that should never have existed in the real world in a lot of ways. I mean, the blockchain is actually the perfect place for those things to exist. And uh, so when you think about it, disrupting an industry, that's a great industry to go disrupt when you have something like a blockchain available to you. So I invest in a company like that uh, called Tari. I've also invested in a company that's actually leveraging something that looks and smells like a blockchain, though they don't actually use a, a traditional blockchain model to actually change how capital markets, so big, big brokerage and banks actually transfer data and, and money. So there's a, a business that's actually working on trying to change how those uh, arcane systems work as well. And that's something that uh, we've invested in as well. So outside of your work, outside of the industries you're typically looking at, those big three, what are some other ones you're very excited or worried about and why? One of the things that I've been spending a lot of time looking at is how manufacturing is going to change. I think we've talked about a lot about, you know, the evolution of manufacturing. Things have kind of gone from, you know, high wage markets to low wage markets and things are kind of changing. I do think there's a whole nother revolution that can actually happen in the what I'll call heavy industry where all of the infrastructure that's actually primarily being done in uh, by human labor can in fact be further automated uh, networked and potentially created you leverage a lot of these machine learning processes and so on and so forth so you actually have a much more automated industrial facility that actually runs even more automated than it ever has i think those are big opportunities a related opportunity there is actually securing those facilities now once you actually have a lot of these systems that are more smart that actually creates another attack vector so that actually creates another thing to attack and actually bring down so there could be industrial security is something that uh, is another area that can actually become uh, interesting as well so that's an area that i've been spending a bunch of time in we're also looking at uh, a lot of things around uh, the evolution of transportation. I think that's another area that clearly is going through a tremendous amount of, of innovation and evolution. Um, again, there's, uh, like everything else, we're going through a hype cycle, but I think there's a lot of uh, residual innovation that will kind of change how we think about transportation going forward. So we're spending a lot of time kind of looking at uh, different opportunities and a variety of different layers of the transportation industry as well. Makes sense, given your focus on AI, cybersecurity, and fintech, that fits up. Uh... That fits pretty solidly in your bucket. If you had to, if you had to make two investments today, hold them for ten years, and each of them were a quarter of your net worth, one public company, one private company. What would you choose and why? So um, let's see. And this I is would, not investment advice, guys. Yeah, I think uh, I am particularly bullish on on Amazon on my public company uh, bucket. Uh, might be a common choice nowadays, but I think what's interesting about Amazon to me is their paranoia. I think uh, ultimately, you know, uh, they say that only the paranoid survive. And I think Amazon, as big as it is, is still very paranoid. And the way they operate and the way they innovate about how they think about the future is uh, very impressive. So if you think about something that I'm going to hold for a much longer period of time, I'm uh, looking for someone that's not fat and happy, but someone that's still paranoid about what the future looks like and is continuing to make investments and to innovate and to change who they are and what they do. And I think Amazon fits that bill very well from that standpoint. Yeah, look uh, at Bezos' eyes. He's got to be paranoid. He's got the crazy eyes going. You can tell. <laughs> that's right. And I think he's uh, is, uh, quite impressive in terms of what he's done with that business. And I think um, and it continues to do that, do that business. Uh, on the private side, 
I'm much, I'm most interested in things that are effectively kind of uh, what I'll broadly call tobu businesses that effectively are sitting on large flows of money and, uh, and picking off uh, small pieces of that as you kind of go through those things. So I, I have uh, one portfolio company called uh, Synapse FI that basically I'm very excited about, which probably qualifies that, that uh, private company, which is effectively doing a substantial amount of innovation in the banking space that uh, that basically will revolutionize i think access to banking to both consumers and businesses and um, and will effectively again sip a small piece of uh, all of what's flowing through that uh, that business which i think is very interesting i sense a theme just like bezos grab a little piece of the pie and make the pie a little bit bigger continuously that's how you build an epic business that's exactly right. What do you What do you look to read to daily, weekly basis to stay informed? I um, I have short attention span, so I basically tend to read short pieces rather than books and uh, and uh, long uh, long articles. And so I spend a lot of time on uh, Twitter and Medium to kind of just kind of see what actually is happening. And I'm I'm less interested in following a single person or a single item. I'm really kind of looking for what uh, attention is aggregating towards. So I'm actually looking at things like Nuzzle. I don't know if you know that tool, but it basically tries to look at what's happening across your networks and floats together to the top, what actually tends to be kind of getting a lot of attention. And I tend to use tools like that uh, in order to kind of keep me informed in terms of uh, what's actually trending and what's going on. What are you worried about today in the world? Anything you'd want to share or bring up? Well, I well, I think if uh, the thing that's that's interesting as a, as a trend line that's happening across the world is that... Uh, there is a lot more distrust between people. And I think there's a lot more, there's a lot of uh, hardlining, if you may, on different sides of opinions. And that actually is reducing the amount of communication between people. So, and I think part of this might actually be a consequence of our investments in technology over the last 10 years, which actually enables us to effectively kind of stick with the crowd that actually resonates our point of view. And, uh, but that fundamentally, I think, is a trend line that is worrying to me. And I'm hoping uh, with the more recent awareness of this issue that we'll do more to kind of uh, address it, both through the technology layer, but also as a society and as people. I would definitely agree with all of that. As we start to wrap things up, if you had one piece of advice for people, it can be a quote, a call to action, anything, before you tell them where to find you and more about the firm, what would it be and why? I think the the, the biggest thing that I will tell people is uh, to be naive and to learn fast. And uh, I've, it's kind of worked for me. The the best is be naive as in don't have a very strong point of view on something, which basically means that you think something is either possible or not possible and you know it because you're, you're you know, you have a lot of experience and so on and so forth. Believing that anything is possible and anything can be done, I think is is important. As we grow, as we, as we kind of build our experiences, we tend to kind of believe our experiences can actually add a tremendous amount of value. And I think the, the people that have the naivete to go try things that everybody else thinks are impossible are the ones that actually are changing is uh, to learn quickly. So I think um, with the, if you attack the world and learn as much as you possibly can very quickly in an area that you know is interesting or new or different, you could be the one that actually is uh, creating that next big company or that next big uh, world-changing technology. Whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're probably right. Schwark, it was fun having you on. This has been uh, this has been awesome. I assume people will love this because I enjoyed it as well. Where's the best place for people to 
find you, learn a little more? I think our website actually has all of our, you know, contact information, coordinates, et cetera, uh, trinityventures.com. I'm at Schwark at trinityventures.com. And um, I'm also on Twitter at Schwark. So uh, those are all great places to reach me. Awesome. Thanks for coming on today, Schwark. It's been, a, it's been a lot of fun. And if you guys enjoyed this and you enjoyed the discussion that we had around some of the tech giants as well, the syndicate.vc slash free, you can grab my book on the the gods of the valley, so to speak, even though Bezos isn't quite in the valley and see where we're headed with uh, the Fang and Google companies. So uh, yeah, thanks uh, thanks for doing this, Spark. It was, it was fun. Likewise, it was fun uh, doing this as well. Cheers, guys. Thanks for listening to The Syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to thesyndicate.vc slash join and get access to some of the best startup deals. This has been another episode of The Syndicate. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you guys again next week.